thank you for, for having me. Thank you for inviting me to share in this series that I've been really excited about, this diving deeper uh, into, into culture series. Um, and so as TC mentioned, uh, my wife Alice here, Penelope's here, and uh, it was funny because when she said that, when she, she literally looked at us and she said, um, Mommy, Daddy, I, please call me Penelope in, in public now. You can still call me Penny at home but call me Penelope in public. And so we're going to honor that today, and we're going to call her Penelope. Um, yeah, so a couple years ago, we were out in uh, uh, the Los Angeles area. That's how we got to know a lot of the same people. That's how TC and I kind of got connected uh, through those mutual friends. Um, and it, it ends up that we both, uh, we learned that we moved from L.A. to the Twin Cities at about the same time last year. Um, so about last fall, we came here. And um, that's just a little bit of a fun fact, but basically what that means is that both of our families, the, the Lores and the Moors, uh, we both um, just endured the longest winter that we've, we've witnessed in a really, really long time. So um, thank you for having us here. Yes, yeah. Since many of you uh, don't know who I am, I thought I would share more about myself and with the month of May being... Um, Asian American and Pacific Islander Month. Um, I thought I would share specifically about my Hmong American and Asian American journey, especially um, growing up in this small rural white town in uh, Winnick County, Wisconsin. And so um, to start, like, like pretty much all Hmong uh, folks in this room in the country, we were, my family and I were refugees uh, from the Vietnam War. And um, we came to the States when I was about two years old. So this was about 1986. And years later, when it was time to go to, or for me to go to middle school, my parents moved us uh, from um, Fond du Lac to the small town called Winnicani, Wisconsin. I don't expect you to know where that is besides somewhere in southeast Wisconsin. Um, but here at Winnicani, my five siblings and I became the first non-Caucasians to ever enroll at this school district, like ever. Um, and so to kind of make things more interesting, uh, remember my family had just arrived in the mid-80s, and so my parents fully embraced and practiced Hmong shamanism, Hmong cultural values, uh, patriarchy, everything, you name it. Um, it was all a part of um, how we lived at home. Um, and without going into a whole ton of details, at home we'd practice uh, this religion, shamanism or animism. If somebody was sick in our home or uh, if things just weren't going well in the life of the family, we would call a shaman to come over, do a, a healing ritual, some kind of uh, sacrificing, you know, some kind of animals. Um, and uh, we would, you know, prepare the, the, these dishes in traditional Hmong uh, style. We'd be speaking Hmong to each other. We even watched Hmong-dubbed Bollywood films. <laughs> like, that's actually a thing. You can probably go to Hmong Village and, and pick up a copy first. I don't know if they make DVDs, though. They might just be VHS. I don't know. So, um, so as you might imagine, the way that we were kind of growing up at home and then living in this small, white, rural town we developed um, these radical kind of bicultural identities. Uh, this Hmong family, refugee, but planted in this exclusively white town in Winnick County, Wisconsin. And so we were constantly straddling in and out of these two different cultural systems. And um, I think at minimum that allowed us to uh, at least see that 
there was a difference in cultural waters that we were swimming in. But I don't know if we could fully articulate and, and nuance what the differences were, um, especially just as teenagers, right? And it wasn't until I got older that I thought to, like, this is serious. This, this bicultural experience, is, um, it's shaped me fundamentally, deeply. It's confused me at times. Um, and so I took it serious to, to process it, to better understand it. Uh, and, and one Asian-American Christian scholar who has, who has been particularly helpful for me to kind of understand this really radical bicultural experience is a Korean-American by the name of Sang Hyun Lee. And Dr. Lee describes how people of minority cultures in America are often pushed to the fringes of society or marginalized um, within like the larger white society. And so for Lee, when he's with kind of the majority culture, he feels marginalized as an Asian American. However, when uh, Lee is in a predominantly Asian context, even then he feels a little bit marginalized because he feels like he might be too American, whatever that means we could be up for discussion. So he finds himself stuck kind of in between these two worlds. And this kind of sounds like the language that, that Roots, Roots uses uh, for, for kind of what we're all doing here, right? So there's this tension um, inside of uh, people like uh, Sang Hyun Lee, myself, many of us here, where we find ourselves kind of straddling these two cultures and these two societies. So while discovering Dr. Lee's uh, book was, was helpful uh, for me to kind of give me language to describe my, my bicultural experience, it, it didn't really fully resolve um, the complexities of what, of what culture really is uh, underneath the surface. I think all of us can easily identify like the external attributes of culture, like the clothes that people wear. Yeah, obviously, you know, the, the, the food, the language, um, the art. These are all the external attributes that we can see really quickly, but what makes one culture unique from the other. But I think that's like the smaller portion. It's kind of like the tip of the iceberg. I think that so much of what culture is is like underneath the surface, and that is kind of invisible and it's hard to see. Things like the cultural imagination, uh, social expectations, um, uh, things like um, just when you go to someone's house, like how do you engage with hospitality and th these kinds of things, you can't spot these things uh, right away. So I've been continuously challenged to kind of explore culture on that below the surface level more and more uh, in terms of what it means for me to be Hmong American even after reading Dr. Lee's book. So likewise in this sermon today, I'm going to challenge all of you to do similarly for your respective cultures. What's underneath the surface of your cultures and how well do you know what, what that driving forces are for you? So how well do you know your cultures? So today we're going to be uncovering some of these questions and dynamics of biculturalism, multiculturalism, um, and how they were at work in the life and in the teachings and the writings of the Apostle Paul, uh, spe specifically within uh, Paul's first century Greco-Roman and Jewish context, right? We're going to be looking at uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. So that's going to be uh, 1 Corinthians will be in chapter 1, verses uh, 18 through 25, so I invite you to turn there with me, otherwise I believe it'll be on the screens for us to follow along as well. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. 
For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater? Some translations say philosopher of this age. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Now, if you listen carefully to that reading of Scripture, you may have noticed the word wisdom repeated quite a bit. Wisdom or Sophia. Sophia in Greek, wisdom. And in this first letter uh, to the Corinthians, Paul uses that word wisdom as a noun uh, the most frequently in this letter compared to all his other letters in the New Testament. So as a noun, he uses it 28 times for all his letters. And 15 of those occurrences are right here in 1 Corinthians. And so this is going to be important to knowing why Paul is using this word wisdom in such a concentrated way uh, in this letter. Um, So we're going to get to that. Um, So, but let's take a step back just for a second, and let's look at the verse 17, the verse right before the main passage. Uh, And there we read, um, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, or Sophia, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. So from the beginning, Paul is using wisdom in contrast to the power of the cross of Christ. Essentially, uh, this is painting wisdom in a pretty negative light here, and he is um, setting up our main passage with this contrast, that wisdom is kind of in this negative light. And so if we go to the start of our passage in verse 18, we read that for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who are perishing, right? But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And so those who are perishing, these are associated with... uh, with those who see the message as foolishness, right? And I think we all would agree foolishness is the opposite of wisdom. Uh, And so, again, there's this contrast that's very clearly painting wisdom in a negative light because those who are perishing, they rely on a certain kind of wisdom that uh, they rely on the certain kind of wisdom at the cost of relying on the power of the cross, so zooming out uh, for a moment to get kind of continue getting this broader picture of how Paul is using wisdom, this word here. Um, in uh, the next chapter, if we were to jump there, 1 Corinthians 2, 
Um, Paul writes, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. All right, and again, the same kind of thought uh, in uh, the next verse goes, uh, My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom or Sophia, but with the demonstration of the spirit and of power. Right, so again and again, in this letter, um, Paul is showing us that this kind of wisdom is uh, somehow uh, antithetical to the power of the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit. So it should be very clear here he's painting wisdom in this negative light in, this, in these opening chapters of 1 Corinthians. But just to kind of bring some balance, though, to, to this depiction of Paul, wisdom is not all bad. Right? It's not all bad. In other parts of his letters, uh, wisdom is a, is a great thing. Right? In Romans eleven thirty three, Paul wrote, uh, wrote about God. He wrote, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Right? And then Ephesians 1, 17, Paul wrote, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him. And one more in Colossians 1, 9, uh, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom, or Sophia, and understanding. So this list of positive usage for wisdom uh, could go on and on for uh, a couple of other of his letters. Um, so, but with these two contrasting meanings for wisdom within Paul's letters, um, we kind of begin to get a sense that Paul's kind of going out of his way in 1 Corinthians to, to depict wisdom in this negative light. So, uh, so what was it about this kind of wisdom that uh, the Corinthians were after that did not seem to get Paul's approval? All right, what was it about the Corinthians' uh, notion of wisdom that Paul did not seem to be approving? Right, uh, we get a glimpse at this um, at the beginning of of the letter in two very short verses, right? Paul, Paul wrote to them at the beginning of this letter, 1 Corinthians, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. And what I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. And so this church in Corinth, uh, who are comprised of mostly uh, the Gentile, the Jew, uh, sorry, the, the Greek Gentiles, non-Jewish believers of Jesus, um, they were divided in their loyalties to these different Christian leaders, right? And now it says that some were saying, I belong to Christ. Can we just give a public shout out to those people? Because they got it right, right? There was a group that actually said, I belong to Christ, right? So whether this was Paul's sarcasm or not, I don't know. I think it's great that he included that in there, right? Um, but Paul lists um, uh, these other leaders, including himself, right? Himself, Apollos, Cephas, and Christ. So we know who Paul is. Paul is um, the missionary to the, to the Gentile world, to the nations. He wrote this letter. We know who Cephas is. Cephas is uh, Peter's Aramaic name. And Peter, or Cephas, was one of Jesus' Jewish disciples. So that's who Cephas is. Um, and we know who Christ is, right? Um, hopefully, if we don't know if, you, if we don't know who Christ is, um, Pastor T.C. will preach you a sermon on that some other day, right? 
Um, so that leaves us with who in the world is Apollos? Who's Apollos? This other, one of the four names that, that Paul is highlighting here of Christian leaders in Corinth. Well, Apollos was a genuine follower of Jesus, right? He wasn't like a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. He was a true follower of Jesus. He was a Jew, Jewish follower of Jesus from the city of Alexandria in northern Egypt. And Alexandria was a hub for training Greek philosophy or Sophia, right? Apollos had been trained in classical Greek rhetoric or wisdom, specifically known as the sophist tradition, right? the sophist tradition. You see how that word sophist sounds a lot like Sophia? Um, so this was Apollos's background, right? Um, and as you might notice, right, like this is kind of Paul's reacting to this a little bit. So Paul, uh, sorry, Apollos was mentioned in scripture as an eloquent man, right? And, uh, Paul kept saying in his letters here that um, uh, he did, Paul did not come preaching the gospel with eloquence, right? So you see Paul uh, contrasting himself with Apollos' style of preaching. Um, and in Acts 18.24, we see Apollos come on the scene, so we get a better picture of who Apollos was. And Acts 18 reads, Now there came to Ephesus a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, he was an eloquent man. There it is. He was an eloquent man, well-versed in scriptures, the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with burning enthusiasm and taught accurately the things of Jesus. Sounds kind of like a pretty decent preacher to me. I'll let you guys be the judge, but um, he sounds like a pretty decent preacher. Uh, but what, with, within this mostly uh, Greek Gentile uh, church setting, there may have been some Jewish followers there, but a lot of the evidence doesn't suggest that. So mostly Greek Gentile believers at Corinth, um, they really liked that flavor of Greek philosophy, uh, that classically trained Greek rhetoric in their preachers. They looked up to it. They yearned and hungered for that kind of preacher that Apollos had been trained to be. So this would have been part of their um, just natural, normal kind of cultural system and framework. Greek rhetoric was just part of their society. Their, their world operated within the framework of Greek rhetoric as the driving force underneath the tip of their iceberg. And one uh, scholar describes it as such. I'll be up there for you. As the three genres of rhetoric imply, the main areas of life where important rhetorical oratory operated were the courtroom, the civil assembly, and the important public civil and religious celebrations. To those who inhabited this realm of social life, rhetoric was perceived as being everywhere. Right? Life in the provinces and rural parts of the empire probably did not experience the place of rhetoric in the same way as the major centers. But there is good archaeological evidence of Hellenistic cities with amphitheaters, gymnasia, and markets where speech-making was important. So the Greeks loved Greek philosophy. Shouldn't be surprising. The Greeks loved their rhetoric and their kind of wisdom. Um, and it appeared to be the case that the church in Corinth was comprised of this type of Jesus follower. 
And so we see now that this was the reason why Paul uh, speaks of wisdom in this kind of condescending way in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, where Paul had to compete with Apollos, this uh, classically trained rhetorician type from Alexandria. Paul had to compete with him. And because these folks in Corinth, uh, the they were looking for something real specific in Greek philosophy. But the two-worded, simple message of Christ crucified was not that eloquent sounding. It was not that compelling or elaborate, these two words. Instead, it sounded like foolishness to them. What is this garbage, Christ crucified? Give us a thesis or something, right? Uh, so we can begin, so can we begin to identify the cultural waters that these Greek-speaking Gentile believers were swimming in, right? Could they see their own cultural waters? If you were them, could you have seen your, that cultural water at that time? I guess we'll never know. <laughs> well, if Greeks looked for Greek philosophy, then what did Jews look for, right? What did Jews look for? We read in verse 22 of our main passage that Jews, on the other hand, looked for signs or these acts of power and these acts of wonder that pointed to the Messianic age, the age where Yahweh would uh, save and restore Israel, right? Jews looked for this kind of sign. For Jews, it wasn't the rhetoric and the elaborate, uh, eloquent speeches that pointed to truth. It was these acts and these signs of power. And uh, twice in uh, the Gospel of John, the Jews, uh, these are the Jews talking, they asked Jesus, what sign can you give us that we may see and believe? Right? And, and Matthew, Mark, and uh, Luke, um, they all report even Jesus' Jewish disciples asking him, what will be the sign of your return, the end of the age? They're looking for signs because for Jews, signs pointed to the arrival of the Messianic age of Yahweh's restoration of Israel. And Paul is saying in this letter that Jews asking for such signs, that the message of a crucified Messiah did not fit with these signs of power and wonder, that it was actually a stumbling block for the Jews to hear Christ crucified. It didn't fit with what they had been looking for. It didn't fit with their cultural rubric and how they were assessing leaders and God's activity in the world. A crucified Messiah on a Roman cross. That's what they got, right? This, what kind of Messiah was that, right? Surely, surely not Israel's Messiah. So we can begin to see then how um, the message of Christ crucified Here's what it does. It confronts these dominant cultural rubrics. It confronts them, and then it critiques them, right? And, and it critiques these, these rubrics and these lenses that both Jews and Greeks wore over their eyes, right? The message of Christ crucified critiques our dominant cultural rubrics. 
Having said all of this about Jews demand signs, it's also really, really important to keep in mind that Paul was a devout Jew. He studied Torah. He studied the law of Moses in Jerusalem, right? Um, He was zealous for the uh, traditions of his Jewish ancestors. And so when Paul writes, Jews demand signs, but we preach Christ crucified, we should not think Paul is saying Jewish identity is now obsolete because it's not, right? Uh, Paul was very much thoroughly Jewish still. He, obser- he circumcised Timothy at one point, and, uh, one of his uh, pupils, right? Um, and so, uh, so this is Paul, the Jew, writing Jews demand signs, but we preach Christ crucified. And so Paul, he then models for us, he exemplifies for us that it's appropriate, even necessary, to let the message of Christ crucified critique Paul's own ethnic identity, even while Paul holds on to that Jewish identity, right? So I'll say that one more time. Paul models for us that it's appropriate, if not necessary, to let the message of Christ crucified critique my cultural rubric and your cultural rubric. So that means how I assess things as a Hmong American or an Asian American ought to be open to that message critiquing me. Not so that I abandon my Hmongness or Asianness or Americanness, but so that my Hmongness and my Asianness and my Americanness is shaped and driven by that message. And the same is true for all of us in the room. No one's asking anyone to abandon your cultural lens or your cultural identity but be open to letting the message of Christ crucified critique it so that your ethnic rubric and identity is shaped and driven by the message of Christ crucified. This would, of course, this would require then that we know where our cultural elements are at work in our lives, right? That we'd have some sense of what's underneath the tip of the iceberg. It's when you know your culture that that's when you see the need for how Christ crucified might confront your particular message. So do you know your culture? Do we know our cultures? So this, this idea of um, critiquing kind of our, our dominant uh, cultural rubrics um, brings us back to Dr. Lee's concept of, of, of being marginalized at two cultural fronts. And, and, he, and, and Dr. Lee calls that space uh, liminality, right? Liminality. That's not a word I would use very often if I was out at Target running errands. I would never say liminality. But there it is, right? And Dr. Lee uh, defines uh, kind of, he, he, he articulates liminality in the following way. Says, to be in between and at the edges is to attain a distance from the, the structure in the center. And in liminality, there's not only a kind of freedom to be and to think and to act in a way that's not quite allowed in the structure or the center, but also a freedom to be critical of the structure and the center, both negatively and constructively. Liminality is the creative space where one has the freedom to break down the status quo and also the freedom to rebuild it in a different way, in a different way. So we're going to go ahead and leave up this quote on the screens, and we're going to ask, was the Apostle Paul 
exemplifying this kind of liminality in 1 Corinthians 1. I would suggest that he is. Otherwise, I wouldn't really have a sermon, would I? I would say that he is exemplifying this. As a Jew within the larger Roman Empire, Paul was an ethnic minority amidst a larger majority, right? And again, Paul being a Hebrew of Hebrews or really zealous for the traditions of his Jewish ancestors, um, it was his knowledge of, of the Old Testament scriptures that allowed him to say Jews demand signs, but we preach Christ crucified, right? Um, and then also the same Paul was a Roman citizen. He was sent to preach the gospel to the larger Hellenistic world, the Greek-speaking world of that time. So Paul was knowledgeable enough of Greek, Greco-Roman culture to say Greeks desire wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. So we see Paul exercising his liminality in that space, in that space between Jew and Greek, right, where he confronts and then he dismantles and then he reconfigures both the Jewish metrics for signs and then he reconfigures the Greek metrics for wisdom. And that further in line with, with Lee's limina, Dr. Lee's liminality, um, what Paul was doing here would have been a prophetic critique to the dominant social structures, or the dominant social locations, right? Um, and so a concrete example of this was when uh, Paul confronted Peter and James, who came from the church from Jerusalem. Paul confronts him on how to associate with Gentiles. And Pastor T.C. talked about that last week from Galatians 2. So Paul is confronting aspects of Jerusalem, this dominant cultural uh, hub for Jewish life. And then on the other hand, uh, Paul's same message would have been a prophetic critique to the dominant social structures of Athens and Rome and Alexandria, where Apollos was from. These were these large dominant social Societies and cities that disseminated Greek philosophy and Greek law and Greek customs, right? And Paul was preaching to them because all of that large culture often happened at the colonizing of these minority ethnic groups within the Mediterranean. And so placed between these two social centers of Jerusalem, and we'll just lump Athens, Rome, and Alexandria, Paul proclaims this simple, this two-worded message of Christ crucified. Again, not eloquent, not compelling, not showing signs or acts of power or wonder, but sufficient in power to confront, to critique, dismantle, and then superseding these Greek metrics and Jewish metrics. The message of Christ crucified went beyond what their cultural axioms could measure, right? It superseded their cultural rubrics because in verse 15, or sorry, verse 25, Paul wrote, for God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. So, here at, at Roots, what do we, what do, we do with, uh, with, with all of this biculturalism, multiculturalism, liminality? Uh, what do we do with all of that here um, at Roots? There might, there might be uh, two general ways that you're, you're hearing this message today. I think the first way that we can hear this message is 
what does it look like for you to um, dig deeper into your cultural setting underneath the, the surface or the tip of the iceberg of your culture that you might allow the message of Christ crucified to critique that, right? That's kind of one way that uh, we might be hearing this. I think another way that we could be hearing this message is as for the bicultural folks in the room, right? As a bicultural, as a liminal person, what does it look like for you to proclaim the gospel so that it uh, critiques dominant social settings around you? I think these are the kind of the two general ways in which we can kind of hear this message. Um, and so I think right off the bat, it's clear all of us uh, fall, at least fall in the, uh, the first category of we all have a particular culture underneath the tip of the iceberg to explore and to better understand. I think all of us right, are in that camp. And I'm, I'm going to be a little bold here, and, and I'm going to say that um, for, for us who are in uh, majority settings or spend our time in homogenous context, right, that, that, that's going to actually make it a little bit more challenging for you to see what's underneath the, the bottom of your uh, cultural iceberg. And that's kind of just the nature of it, right? So in, in America, that is our white brothers and sisters, right? And it's not anything that they've done. It's just the setting is that white Americans are the majority. And if I were in a Hmong majority setting, it would be a matter of time before I lost track of, whoa, there's particularity going on here. I would start to think that everyone around me looks and talks like me, so then this just becomes normal. Um, and so that is the ongoing challenge for our white brothers and sisters in Christ here in America, right? If you're in China, that's not the case, <laughs> right? Um, uh, but, but being here at Roots, right, a multi-ethnic uh, community, um, you've already, we've already all already stepped foot into welcoming uh, our counterparts, right, to kind of reflect back to us that my culture is not universal, right, and that your culture is not universal. So being in the midst of uh, different ethnic groups already allows us that space to see that about each other. And I think that's a really, really positive thing and a much needed thing for the life of the church in America. I think many of you would agree with that. Would you say amen? Amen. Um, and so, again, I'm not saying we, we need to abandon cultural lens, even if cultural lens is, is whiteness or Asianness. Um, I think uh, that oftentimes that, uh, again, for the majority brothers and sisters, that it's, it's when uh, some white, uh, uh, whether they're believers or not, when they deny that there's a white lens, I think that actually gets us into more trouble. So I think it's helpful to just name it and then to, say, to, 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 to label it particular, just like I'm particular, and neither one of us is universal. I think that is a very healthy way of seeing our role as a multi-ethnic community. Um, and so what I am saying is that all of us, yes, all of us need to explore. Now, uh, there's no exceptions to this, right? All of us need to explore what's underneath the tip of our iceberg. And again, uh, not even the Jewish apostle Paul was an exception to this. Right? Paul uh, thought it necessary that the message of Christ crucified should come and critique his own Jewish identity. So then that leads us to the uh, the, the other uh, number of us in the room who 
um, are we identify as bicultural, multicultural, multiracial, that we see ourselves in that in that vein, and then um, we might be feeling this this permission, this encouragement to actually uh, embrace more and to leverage more our multiple cultural heritages, because when we do that, we actually have a bigger bandwidth in our gospel proclamation and our gospel living. And it's almost like if you're a liminal person, it's almost like God just doubled your audience of who needs to hear Christ crucified, right? You have multiple languages, multiple cultural paradigms that you understand are at work. You see different cultural waters at work. You can enter in and out of them. Yeah, God's just like doubled your audience. So um, steward that, right? Steward that well. Yeah. So we'll go the final step here and ask, how is this message of Christ crucified um, good news for us here at Roots as, as an entire community? How is this time been good news for us here, hearing this message? Um, we all know that we're all embodied and enculturated beings, right? That we can't just, uh, even if we think we can, that we can't just get rid of our language and our culture and our gender and our ethnicity, right? Because if you did that, what would you have left, right? We'd be these disembodied, acultural things, which take away completely from what it means to be humans, right? So we can't get rid of any of that, right? So in light of the reality that we are permanently... Uh, embedded, uh, well, these cultural attributes are permanently embedded in us, right? In light of that reality, the good news here is that um, the message of Christ crucified has sufficient power to unite these different uh, cultural groups together. And, and here, here's, here's what I mean by that. That this unity is possible um, when all of us, starting with our own uh, cultural iceberg or our own cultural rubrics, when all of us allow the message of Christ crucified to critique us, to sh- reshape us, and to drive our particular cultures, then this gives rise to the best versions of our cultures, to the redeemed versions of our cultures, right? And, and then when you bring all these different redeemed cultures together into one community, then you can begin to have a multi-ethnic family of Jesus followers on earth, right, as will be in heaven. Yeah. Amen. Let's join together in prayer. Gracious God, we are your people, Lord. We um, are the people who you knew uh, before, before you created the world, God. Um, God, that your word says you've called us to yourself, Lord. We're the called. And so for the called, you are both power and you both uh, satisfy the signs, God. That whatever we look for, whatever our parents looked for, God, because there's a generational um, rubric as well, God, that you satisfy and you supersede all that we need as particular people, Lord. Thank you that you can do that, Jesus, that you, um, that you are universal and that we are not, Lord. So thank you that you are the God who uh, enters into our uh, setting and our situations and you meet us um, exactly where we are at, Lord. So God, we pray that as your people, we would be open to your Holy Spirit convicting us of sin, of actual sin, and how our different cultures need to be reformed by you, God. 
God, and it's within our own respective cultures that we, we, t- we cl- pick up that kind of that uh, responsibility first, God, before we look outwardly to others, God. We pick it up uh, that it's our need uh, to repent in our respective cultures, Lord, that you may have your way with us as a redeemed community of multi-ethnic believers here, God. So it's in the name of Jesus that we give you this time and we give you praise. Amen.